Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On March 8th, 1936, Big Bill France pulled his 1935 Ford V8 Coupe to the start of the track. Waves lapped quietly along the shore of Daytona Beach, just 30 feet away. 26 other racers idled their brand new street-legal family sedans manufactured by Plymouth, Packard, Ford, Chrysler, and others up to the starting line. The starting gun fired, and absolute chaos erupted across the thin ribbon between land and sea. 27 cars rocketed down the first stretch, spraying hard-packed sand into the sky. Then, they turned onto Atlantic Avenue, where their balloon tires finally got some traction. The cars bashed into each other, littering the track with mirrors, headlights, and fenders. If the drivers managed to not get shoved off the track, they risked wrecking into the larger and larger potholes forming in the sandy speedway. This was no 24 hours of Le Mans, and these were no fancy Euro-lad racers. These were good old boys, and about half of them honed their driving skills evading the police while illegally driving hooch across state lines. Big Bill noticed immediately that the small Ford V8s were drifting across the sand and avoiding getting stuck like the other cars, but they had the power to pull away from the competition. He realized there was a formula to their success. Within a few dozen laps, only the Ford drivers remained in the race. Ten cars, all Ford V8s, wound up finishing the race in one piece or at least not entirely in pieces. Today on Pass Gas, where did the idea of the muscle car come from? And what even is a muscle car? How did drivers go from tiny flathead V8s to fire-snorting 454s in only a few short decades? And who holds the title for the first true muscle car? We're hitting the gym, doing some auto bodybuilding, and getting swole for an all-muscle car edition of the show. These cars are on steroids, and so are we. Pass gas, podcast, it's 
Shut up! <laughs> you want to fight me? You want to fight me, dude? Oh, I just pop this zit on my back. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that this morning because I was skateboarding yesterday. I sprayed beer all over myself, all over my back. Yeah, it was funny. I saw it. Beer zits. It got on my back, and then I was like, well, I got to take a shower when I get home. And then I completely forgot. Classic beer zits. I think it's, I think it's crazy that like half of the people in this race... Uh, we're evading police driving Tom Hanks's dog across state lines. <laughs> what does that mean? Hooch. That's oh, a Turner, Turner and I Hooch joke. Yeah. Really timely. Thank you. I think they are remaking that movie, so maybe it will be timely again. Uh, yeah, Timothy Chalamet is playing Hooch. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar Isaac is Turner and Timothy Chalamet is Hooch. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be hilarious. Yeah, and um, Adam Driver's in it. What does he do? He's a he's a cop. He's a cop. But he <laughs> but he doesn't like the dog. He doesn't like Timothy Chalamet the dog. He's allergic. Yeah, he's like, oh, I'm allergic to this dog. Oh, it's got <laughs> slobber all over my badge. I can't wait for that to come out. It's going to be really good. It's weird that they took like a real dog and then just CGI'd uh, Timothy Chalamet's mouth on the dog. Yeah, just his mouth. Yeah. (laughs) It's weird to see a dog with human lips. I don't know. uh, Charlie Kaufman directed it, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I trust it then. Yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. Wow. Okay. Uh, I think that's enough of that bit. Welcome to (laughs) Pass Gas. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by one James Pumphrey. Toot toot! And another Joe Weber. Uh, keep it juiced, Wink Wink Nation! And this week we are talking about one of my favorite genre, subgenre of automobile, the muscle car. Uh, definitely the car that got me into cars. I said cars a lot. I'm saying it a lot over and over. I can't stop. Uh, gentlemen, what, where do you guys stand on muscle cars? What's what's your experience with them? What's your feeling on them? What do you know about them? What's how are we feeling? One of the first cars I ever really wanted was a, a second gen Chevelle. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Great pick, great pick. Because because uh, uh, um, what's his name drove one in the faculty. Uh, was that Ethan Hawke? No, sorry, Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Yeah, yeah not like that not. weird haircut, and then he ripped the machete off of the paper cutter, and cut John Stewart's fingers oh, off. Oh snap, dude! I I haven't seen that movie, but he like he made meth and sold it at that school, so that's why he wanted that car. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to sell meth and cut up John Stewart with a machete. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I was never was around anyone that had a muscle car. Um, I like them. I just. You know, I'm more into JDM cars than muscle mm-hmm. cars. I like, I appreciate them. Don't come at me, Cobra Nation. Uh, please. Cobra Nation, hold back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, if you like muscle cars or not, depends on like the population of the town you grew up in. Yeah, and totally. This is purely anecdotal because i come from a small town and everyone there had like it was like a hot rod muscle car town that was what's cool uh only weirdos were into jdm stuff 
you you grew up in Rust Valley, right? I grew up, yeah, 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 yeah. I grew up in in Rust Valley. Um, what's the guy, the, the tall guy's name? Uh, Mike. Yeah, Mike. He was my uh, uncle. <laughs> um, no, but I don't know. There's just something about the muscle car. Big engine, small car. Although as as time went on, uh, it was more like big engine, still big car. I think the problem is that like you know the classic formula of big engine small car like cars were really really big back then anyway so like it wasn't really that small of a car there's like a nice chevelle that drives down my street and it's a huge car they're large they are large cars yeah are they in charge they are in charge or in charger oh <laughs> uh, nice. which is one of my that's, that's solid. my favorite 1960 the 68 charger it's my favorite one super cool just like a it's like a shark it like is this a possibility uh if you if you trade your like build up your chrysler Mm-hmm. build up your dart and then trade both of those for like a 68 charger Ooh. well my plan is uh we'll get well we'll since we're on the subject of the of the imperial i you know want to get that i i'm gonna be working on that this weekend um get that finished get that driving in a driving state sell it use the proceeds as like a down payment on a new car at some point not right now i think it'd be dumb to buy a new car right now because the market is so insane um but down the line get that new car and then um yeah i got the dart up at my dad's house so uh get that going little known fact um muscle cars are named um because fast horses were called muscle horses (laughs) because you could see their muscles yeah Literally, they had long, strong legs but short bodies. Yeah, um, so it was like a big heart in a little horse, and they were called <laughs> muscle horses. So now that's muscle cars. That's amazing. I did not know that. Thank you. And they go through like twice as much hay as a normal horse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think something I also want to talk about, maybe near the end of this episode, is like, do muscle cars still exist today? Yeah. What are you kidding me? No, not kidding you. <laughs> We're at the peak of muscle car. We're at peak muscle car. There's, yeah, there's way more muscle cars now than there were in the muscle car era. Yeah, everything's 900 horsepower right now. All right, so maybe you flipped it a little bit. Maybe what we need to, I'm saying like the the char, the Challenger, of course, two door coupe, lots of power. That yeah, definitely a muscle car. But it's like the Charger. That's a sedan. But that's a muscle car. There's also like every. Like every domestic car company has, and I know like technically like Mustangs and Camaros are like pony cars, but they're huge now too. They're, they're you could yeah. call them muscle cars. They're, I don't really. Give yeah, every domestic crap. car brand has a seven hundred horsepower option. <laughs> don't even get me started on whether an electric car is a muscle car, a little car, big batteries. Like, <laughs> like the the, <laughs> the the idea of a fast car is more in the ether right now than it ever has been. The fact that like tech nerds give a about the tesla plaid like the tesla plaid's a muscle car yeah that that was the most insane experience i've ever had in a car that felt i felt like i was gonna break my neck 
and I I threw I like my the phone flew out of my face out of my hands and hit me in the face. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's like you can't write that. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like you should send that to Tesla. Then. I drove a German muscle car recently. Oh, two of them. I would say. well, well, there was the the AMG GT that Joe and I rode in. I don't know if I'd call that a muscle car. It's just like a grand touring car, but like the uh, the it's like a roadster. Yeah, it's a roadster. It's yeah, that's a sports car. But the uh, M2 CS that we had at the office, that's a BMW M2 with the engine from the bigger and faster M4. Yeah, I was about when you brought when you brought that car up, I was going to be like, that's not a muscle car, but when you, but by definition, it is. Yeah, by definition, because it's a little car, and I want I want it. Great car. Um, all right, so. I guess muscle cars are still around. It's a little car, and I want it. I I like <laughs> I I like little cars, even though I look ridiculous in them. Um, small cars are the best. That being said, how about we get into the history of the muscle car? Let's explore this. Where did it come from? Let's start from the top. Let's let those big muscles wrap around us and hold us tight. Yes, like a like a meaty blanket. Sometimes I wish, <laughs> just like for a second. My girlfriend could be as big as Shaq. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> so she so she could pick me up for once. <laughs> Rachel tries to pick me up and I every time I'm like, You're gonna get hurt. Stop doing this. And she'll be like, No. And then yeah, like it doesn't make you feel safe. It makes you feel the opposite. No. Yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna hurt get hurt. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's get in the muscles. Well, on that race day back in 1936, the beachgoers who put their life on the line standing next to a disheveled, sandy tract witnessed the birth of not only NASCAR and Daytona Beach, but also the spark that would ignite the flame that became the muscle car. The city of Daytona Beach, on the other hand, considered the race a total bust. They lost $22,000 or almost $433,000 in today's money. Um... Drivers called the event a sham, complaining that the scoring was bogus and that the track became impassable with stuck cars, making racing impossible. This makes more sense now because I was like, why would anyone want to like drive that aggressive with their brand new car? But if it's half a million dollars, that's totally worth it. Yeah, it's a, it was a big event. Big purse. Unfortunately, though, the truth is lost to history as there is no footage of the actual race because it was 1936, but safe to say it was messy. Back then, racing was a gentleman's pastime, just like growing a handlebar mustache and drinking brown liquor, which is to say things got ungentlemanly real fast. The race ended a few laps early because the cars literally fell apart and they had to declare a winner. While pretty much everyone involved considered the race a complete failure, the idea of a big motor in a tiny car proved to be a winning idea that could go the distance. Most of the stock family cars were bloated and underpowered, but not the 1935 Ford Model 48 V8. These little coupes weighed around 2,500 pounds, which was quite lean for the time, even today, and ran off the revolutionary flathead Ford V8. The motor pushed a fairly usable 86 horsepower to the wheels through a non-synchronous three-speed manual gearbox. 
The Flathead V8 became the darling of engine modders at the time who wanted to eke out every pony of their rides. And one of the main reasons they were modding these motors was to race head-to-head with cops as they ran missions to deliver illegal moonshine across state lines. It wasn't revolutionary at this point to jam a V8 into a car in the 1930s. However, a decent amount of manufacturers were already doing that, including companies like Lincoln and Cadillac. But Ford's V8 was fully approved by the bean counters and ready for the masses to buy for cheap. And that meant big sales numbers. So it's like the the LS of the time. That's a good comparison, Joe, yeah. Even during the Great Depression, Ford delivered more than 820,000 Model 48s in 1935 alone. That's about as many total Mustangs Ford sold from 2010 to 2020. And then that number includes the EcoBoost as well. Damn, that's a lot. Damn, they're just buying. That's insane. Yeah, that's a lot. That's so many cars in one year. They're just coming out of that depression like, oh, let's let's make a bunch of stuff. Let's buy them up. <laughs> <laughs> they're just coming out of depression like, oh, let's make a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Over in Europe, meanwhile, racing had already been the sport of kings for decades. There were no good old boys jumping ditches in those mid-1930s Fords and slamming into each other while delivering white lightning. This was racing European style. They wear those leather. Gl- they wore those leather gloves with the knuckles cut out, goggles, freaking scarves. Uh, they're, they're like there's a, literally a Downton Abbey about it. <laughs> they were named Luigi Chinetti and Cecil Masters, not Dick Passwater and Banjo Matthews. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Passwater. That's what I do every morning. <laughs> yeah, you can't like not know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My name's Dick Passwater. My name's Butt Send Mud. <laughs> <laughs> My dad went to high school with a guy named Whip Wiener. It was like, how do you not? How do you not know? Why would you name a baby that? Yeah. <laughs> No, God, you got to love parents that are either completely oblivious or doing a bit while naming yeah. a kid. Like Whip, Whip Wiener? And then his, his son's name was like Harry or something. Like it was no. like, no, 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 no. How if you, okay, if you grow up as Whip Wiener, I'm assuming it's pronounced Weiner, by the way. No. Whip Wiener. Wiener. No, I've, I. Oh my I god, Weiner's to... almost funnier because it makes you say it with an accent. It's like Whip Weiner. Yeah, <laughs> Whip Weiner. <laughs> oh my god, you can't be Whip Weiner growing up and then name your son Harry. It's just not. It's like payback. You'd be evil. Yeah. You are a, a sociopath if you do that to your kid. You're a psycho. James, what was your name again? Butt Pass Mud. Butt pa- Butt <laughs> but Send Mud. My- <laughs> <laughs> My name's Bud Sedman. <laughs> it sounds right. It sounds yeah. like a real person. Uh, when I tell Casey that I'm going to go take a poop, I go, I'm going to go to the bathroom and do my sins. <laughs> I still I still tell Rachel I, I go to drop the kids off at the pool. I'm going to go sit on the water chair and make mud. <laughs> no, no euphemism. It's just... <laughs> We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first Grand Prix uh, in Europe was organized by the Automobile Club de France way back in 1906. The primitive cars of the day managed to cover about 60 miles in an hour, and people died a lot. (laughs) Enough that they pulled race cars off the streets uh, and started building racetracks. The Euro racers were transitioning from soapbox derby cars powered by scooter motors to Triumphs and MGs. The 1946 Triumph Roadster was 100 inches long and weighed 2,500 pounds uh, with a 65-horsepower, 1,800cc motor, pooting it along all those curvy, skinny roads. The car even managed to hit 0-60 to in under 30 seconds. Wow. Which was impressive for the time and the place because some people, you know, a lot of people still rode horses. Meanwhile, in the U.S. of A., Ford was dropping the Super Deluxe on car buyers. Shouts to Super Deluxe. Shouts to Tabasco Sweet. Shouts to Michaela. Gone too soon. R.I.P. Super Deluxe is one of the best YouTube channels. This 3,300-pound coupe housed a 3.9-liter V8 that hit 0 to 60 in a respectable 18.9 seconds, which is slightly faster than a 78 Chevy Chevette. These were competitive numbers back then, and America was already winning. Cars across the globe did this back-and-forth dance of incremental power band boosts. Big cars with oversized motors in the U.S., and little tiny things in Europe with ragtops. And most of the time, they were 0-60 to 60 times matched. Then, along came a little mobile called Oldsmobile. <laughs> The Oldsmobile Rocket 88 changed the auto industry in the same way the iPod changed the music industry. Back then, they didn't use the term disruption very much, but that's what the Rocket 88 did. It came screaming out of nowhere with 135 horsepower and an insane 0-60 to time of 12 seconds. For comparison, 
The 1949 Mercedes-Benz 170 came standard with a 1,767 cubic centimeter, or 107.7 cubic inch, inline four-cylinder engine that squeaked out 52 horsepower. The Benz had a 0-60 to time close to that of a fully loaded down 25-year-old Mack truck, i.e. it was slow. So why was the Rocket 88 so amazing? General Motors recruited the enormously brained Charles Kettering to help design the all-new engine that they planned to stuff into a smaller-than-average car for the time. Kettering is one of the greatest inventors of all time, but he is also one of the most destructive humans to ever exist. (laughs) When he was a young whippersnapper, Kettering founded Delco, which later became AC Delco. Oh. Yeah, a brand best known for putting just-okay parts into your project cars. But back in the day, they were badasses. One big problem with early cars was the hand crank start system. If the driver had not properly set the spark timing, the motor would backfire and eject the hand cranking handle directly into the face of the person starting the car. (laughs) Ow. Not a fun time. I wish TikTok was around back then. (laughs) (laughs) If I had one wish, it's that TikTok was around in the early 1900s. (laughs) Can you imagine Charlie? No one has a phone to use it though. Ch- yeah, Charlie Chaplin on TikTok. Oh, dude, he would slay that. Seven million followers. Dude, amazing. I wish Fred Astaire was on TikTok. He'd probably dance so well. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, Charlie Chap. Did you see that new Charlie Chaplin TikTok with Griffin Johnson, where they have that <laughs> building facade fall on them? <laughs> oh, dude, so sick. How'd they do that? <laughs> Buster Keaton's TikTok is bussin' bussin'. <laughs> More like bussin' Keaton. Uh, nice, dude. In the winter of 1908, Henry Leyland, the founder of Cadillac, had lost a close friend to the ejecting starter handle problem when he was helping a stranded motorist. So it was a, it was a big deal. Leyland vowed, quote, no more men would die at the hands of Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, don't tell him about all the mob guys yeah. driving Cadillacs. So he, he contacted Kettering, who whipped up an electric ignition to bolt onto the Cadillacs, which gave them a huge competitive edge in the luxury car market. You didn't have to hand crank them anymore. You could just start them up with a button. Kettering didn't stop there, though. Next, he designed incubators for premature infants. Then, he designed air-guided missiles for the military. Okay. (laughs) And eventually, 86 other inventions that litter our lives every day. Wow, what range, you know? Mm -hmm. He's a virtual Elon Musk. (laughs) Except he actually does design stuff. Ha, got him. Got him. Charles Kettering is also the guy who brought us leaded gasoline, which, according to one study, still kills around 400,000 people a year just in the U.S. and has contaminated massive amounts of groundwater, soil, and crops. Nice. He is also responsible for the industrial development of Freon, Uh which punched a hole right through our atmosphere into space, which causes widespread skin cancer and global temperature increase. Nice. Yeah. But anyway, back at Oldsmobile... Wait, wait. Fun fact, though. Fun fact. Uh, the last country finally outlawed leaded gas. So it's outlawed all across the globe right now. I can't believe that it took till this. That, that was like a recent. That was like two weeks ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
insane. Yeah. But I mean, it's also like if you don't have like, what is the deal with leaded gasoline? It lubricates it. What is it? I don't know. It it's like acts as like a um, stabilizer. Okay, so like if you live in an area that has like really crummy gasoline, yeah, then that's exactly. why you keep it around for so long. Yeah, it it's like it also interacts with the octane level and like stabilizes the octane level. Gotcha. It wasn't just like, hey, let's just keep it around. <laughs> Yeah, we like this stuff. It's like no, it's what a necessity. What are we gonna do with all this lead? <laughs> Put it on the gas. <laughs> okay. So anyway, back at Oldsmobile, Charles Kettering designed the original five-liter, the Rocket 88's heart. He took the side valve or L-head motor design and switched it up to a 90-degree overhead valve system. Okay, so now it's got valves on top of the engine in the cylinder heads. The overhead valve engines lowered costs dramatically, reducing the surface area of the combustion chambers, which improved thermal efficiency, which is what you want. More, the, the more an engine is thermally efficient, the more power it makes because the less energy it wastes. All of those are just fancy words, meaning the motor is better, which is awesome. And then they shoved it into a smaller car. And the proof was certainly in the pudding. Mm, pudding. The Rocket 88 instantly turned Oldsmobile into a young and hipsmobile. <laughs> <laughs> as the car started showing up at NASCAR tracks and absolutely spanking the other cars out on the on the circuit. Yeah. Yeah, no, daddy. <laughs> the first year of production, the Oldsmobile 88 won 6 out of 9 races, 10 out of 19 in 1950, and 20 out of 41 in 1951. The Rocket 88 was the first true king of NASCAR, and as we all know, won on Sunday, sell on Monday, and sell the Rocket did. The Rocket's incredible ascent ended by 1952 because there was a new kid on the block and he was ready to race. Hudson watched Oldsmobile blast through the records and they watched the sales numbers follow. Hudson drove into stock car racing full force. They were the first manufacturer to officially field a team. During the 1952 season, Marshall Teague raced a Hudson to a 1,000 point lead over his closest rival and took the checkered flag in 12 of 13 of the events. Whoa. Isn't that insane? Damn. Uh, that same year, Herb Thomas, Dick Rathman, Al Keller, Frank Mundy, and Tim Flock. How have names changed so much? <laughs> like Nobody is named any of those anymore. Anyway, all those guys drove Hornets for the official Hudson team and took home 27 wins. The Hornet was seen at the top of the podium in 40 out of 48 races. This is the uh, this is the car that the old guys based on in cars. Doc, Doc Hudson, Doc Hudson, Paul Walker, Paul Paul Newman, Paul Walker, cool hand, Paul Paul Walker, <laughs> Paul Newman, yeah. It was considered an incredible accomplishment for a legit luxury car. The Hornet's secret sauce had two main ingredients. First, the body and frame design was clever, functional, and stylish. And the second was mustard. <laughs> they called it the step down, as in you could step down into a Hudson Hornet. That was because the floor pan footwells were recessed down in between the chassis rails, which were curved around them instead of just sitting on top of a standard frame rails. Interesting. It's like a, it's like a monocoque. This oddball frame design 
stood out because it lowered the car's gravity and made it handle like it was on rails. Definitely a good thing for race cars, but it also created more space for the passengers and gave a more luxurious vibe. We love headroom. You know, I love a good a car with a lot of headroom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing because like this car, while still, you know, the, the, the lowered floors allowed it to also have a lowered roof line. And if you look at the Hudson, Hudson Hornet, like it's sleek, it's a low profile car. Yeah. The second big deal was the engine. Of course, the Hornet was packing a motor with the same size displacement as the rocket 88, five liters, except it was only six cylinders. This overbuilt design topped with a two-barrel carb cranked out a very decent 145 horsepowers and a beastly 270 lerbs of twerks <laughs> <laughs> to move the 3,600-pound Hornet. That's sick. Why does it make so much more torque than horsepower? Big old pistons. Yeah, just a lot of rotating mass in that engine, I would assume. Chrysler, meanwhile was having the same problem as Oldsmobile pre-Rocket. It was considered an old man's company, an old man's car company. They wanted some of those sweet, sweet young man dollars. And they knew the easiest way to do that was to go racing. We need some young man dollars. <laughs> some sweet young man dollars. Oh, you're a sweet young My man. My dollars all have skin flakes on them. You're a sweet young man. Can I have some of your dollars? <laughs> <laughs> Chrysler knew they had one shot to make a splash and drive publicity to their entire line of cars. So they took the already pretty awesome 331 firepower Hemi and did some tweaking. They built that Hemi up to make 300 horsepower with a four barrel carb, hence the name, and dropped it in their smallest car at the time, the Nassau hardtop. Hell yeah. Oh, 300 horsepower. That's that's nasty. To round out the offering and ensure that they'd reach homologation, Chrysler fitted the 300 with a race profile camshaft, solid valve lifters, a stiff suspension, and performance exhaust. They continued to tweak the motor, and the 1956 model made 355 horsepower. Wow. That's a lot. The most of any production car up to that point, and more than a lot of cars today. Yeah, why don't you put a, f a firepower Hemi in your I have, Chrysler? Is I, that what's in there? That's what's in there. I've got the Whoa, I've dude. got this engine. I just have a I have a two barrel carb, and not a I don't have a race cam. I don't think or any of this other cool stuff. But well, let me call my Weber dudes and we'll get you a four barrel. All right, sounds good. They sold one thousand seven hundred twenty two Chrysler three hundreds. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to homologate the car and get it on the track. The 300s instantly boosted Chrysler's street cred and had everyone asking, does that thing got a Hemi? The 300s won 22 out of 41 races in 1956, a very high percentage. By 1957, the 300 was now pushing almost 400 horsepower wow. and was still dominating the racetracks. <clears throat> but the car still weighed close to 4,300 pounds. It was a big girl. Engines were getting better. But the American car still needed to go on a very serious diet, much like myself. <laughs> I eat a lot of sugar. I downloaded a <laughs> calorie counting app this morning. Okay. Wait, we the one we used to have? We used that to, my fitness pal? We used to, yeah, we did. You. It's the same one. I've been using that one for a long time. It's a good one. My fitness pal, if you want to sponsor the show, 
I'm open. The automotive version of Weight Watchers creeped into the U.S. automotive market in the 1950s. George Romney, president of American Motors, had the excellent idea of keeping his head down and keeping AMC far away from direct competition with the big three. George Romney. Yeah, Mitt's dad. Mm -hmm. A surprising uh, ally for civil rights at the time. Mormons have always been kind of like ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. That is true. Not so good of, about naming their kids, though. Not so good with, <laughs> with the Native Americans. But uh, yeah, the, the whole uh, baptism by blood thing is weird. But they, they were allies uh, in the Civil Rights Movement, for sure. All I'm saying, George Romney, very interesting historical figure. Very interesting historical figure. Weirdly, by not trying to compete, Romney drove true innovation into the field of bloated U.S. cars. The large Nash and Hudson sedans that AMC had in their showrooms were getting passed over by car buyers who had all kinds of options in the big-ass sedan sector. For the same price or less, you could instead wind up behind the wheel of a tried-and-true Ford or Chrysler. AMC decided the best way to go big was to go small. Years before the legendary marketing campaign of the VW Beetle, they designed all new small cars with 108-inch wheelbases, which was pretty tiny for the time. The 2020 Dodge Charger has a 120-inch wheelbase. For the heart of their all-new Nash Rambler, AMC built an all-new overhead valve V8 entirely from scratch. It was a tiny 4.1-liter V8, the smallest American V8 available at the time, but it packed 190 horsepower, which was more ponies than any engine Chevy was offering then. Wow. The lessons of small car, big motors were starting to take hold because AMC instinctively knew what Chrysler had learned before them. Fast cars fly off the showroom floor. They jammed their high-performance motor into the lightest Rambler model and called this sleeper the Rebel. Oh, Yes. Named after the girl from Pitch Perfect, Rebel Wilson. <laughs> the 327 V8 pushed out 255 ponies with a four-barrel carb, and you could even upgrade to Bendix fuel injection, which was good oh, for yeah. 288 horsepower in 1957. The big V8 and the Bel Air from around that time was making 162 horsepower. AMC got high fives all around for stopping the competition in 1957, but they never capitalized on that momentum. By the early 1960s, they stagnated. AMC didn't have the bark to keep up with the big dogs, and the big three ate their lunch. It took them until the latter half of the 60s to get back into the muscle car game. I love the Rambler Rebel. Yeah, it's cool. It looks like a car from, uh, it looks like it's from Pushing Up Daisies or something. It looks like something uh, Lee Pace's character would drive in that show. There's like a really, a really nice black restored version in my neighborhood. My neighborhood has a lot of really cool cars now that I'm thinking about it. I would like to own one of, one of these at some point just because it's so funky looking. We know, we know, Nolan, we know. We get it. Yeah, like, yeah, we yeah. get it. You like, you like. Cars that look like they're haunted. Nolan, was it the best car you've ever driven? Best car I've ever driven is is high car. Is high car the Z? Really? Oh yeah. Oh, you Whoa. mean that car that I made? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Best car. Thanks, man. I respect you too. Yeah, dude. It's so crazy you made that car from scratch. Yeah, you know the worst car I've ever driven. <laughs> I don't. Don't answer that. <laughs> 
Low car is not the worst car you've ever driven. If that's where you're going, uh, it's up there. It's no, it's not worse than the worse than your Scirocco. My Scirocco is great. <laughs> no, my Scirocco <laughs> suck too. But the, yeah, low car is like one of the worst cars I've ever driven. Nah, <laughs> it's so unpredictable. Like the boost comes on so like weird and late. And like, like <laughs> the grip is like really weird. It's like it is weird. It's a really ba- it's a very bad car. I never drove high car, but I did drive lo- low car, and I agree with James on that. It was kind of scary. Yeah, whatever the opposite of sorted is, <laughs> that's what low yeah, car is. It's called that. It's fun. That's what it is. <laughs> low car it's is fun. The, low car is the the car equivalent of dumping out a big bucket of Legos on the ground. That's what it feels like. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my favorite pastime as a child. So it really reflects me. Makes sense. We'll get back to more past gas. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As the 1950s became the 1960s, GM's offerings had once again grown stale. The executives were more than happy to sit back and build lead sleds that floated down the highway. Sure, they had stout V8s that were pushing around 200 horsepower, sometimes closer to 300, but these cars were chonky. They'd gone on significant diets thanks to AMC kicking everyone in the butt, but they were still bloated, like me. In 1961, Pete Estes took over as head boss at Pontiac, and he knighted John DeLorean as his chief engineer. DeLorean was sick and tired of the land yacht soaking up all the driving fun, and he'd been pretty vocal about it. DeLorean still had a few decades before he became the coke-binging executive we know and love, but he was still seen as a bit of a madman. We're John DeLorean apologists here. Yeah. We think he, uh, he was wrongly set up by that rat, uh, just to save his company. He's just trying to save his company. Also, Lotus stole a bunch of money from him. Yeah. And Colin Chapman is still alive. <laughs> He's like 120 years old by this point. He's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> He's living, He lives with John Kennedy Jr. <laughs> and, and on December 7th... <laughs> Colin Chapman is going to become our first British president. Yeah. Yeah. Why hasn't there been a British president? Yeah. I ask you that. Why not? Follow the money. Follow Follow the the money. money. Colin Chapman and John F. Kennedy Jr. on December 7th are going to become the president. Both president. Yeah. They're going to share it. They're going to share it. Yeah. If you listen to the lyrics of Chumbawamba's Tump Thumping, <laughs> you understand December 7th, 2021 is the day that I they come back. I get knocked down. I get up again. Huh? You're never going to keep me down. I get Whoa. knocked down. Whoa. I get up man. again. Never going to keep me down. Oh, you're listening with your ears? Listen with your mind. Yeah, it's obviously about a plane crash. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> he gets knocked down out of the sky. And he gets up again. (laughs) Anyway, 
John DeLorean's crazy idea was to return to Daytona Beach and shoehorn the biggest engine they could into the smallest car they had on hand, take this car to the track, and win. He had the approval of Estes. So he pulled a 389 cubic inch motor out of the full-size Bonneville. The 6.4 liter beefy boy made 348 horsepower and 428 foot-pounds of torque which Whoa. is flat out insane for 1961. That's a that, that thing will pull out a tree stump. Yeah. Do you guys ever actually use shoehorns? Uh, when I feel like I used them a lot when I was a kid. I don't know why. <laughs> a lot. I mean, it was a. I mean, looking back on it, yeah, I think there was a lot of shoehorning going on. You were the oldest young kid ever. Yeah, you're like Benjamin Button. <laughs> that is for old people, huh? Yeah. Well, I think that's probably why you use it. Like my, we always had shoehorns in my house. Like, yeah, there's no shoehorn in my current home. <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't seen a shoehorn in decades. Because <laughs> a, yeah. a finger does the same job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Well, as a child, your fingers aren't very strong. And, you know, those new shoes, <laughs> those new Skechers, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty tight. <laughs> I also think we wear a lot less loafers. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that was a, that was a fashion misstep of my younger days was thinking loafers <laughs> were cool. No, loafers are back, baby. I know. I was ahead of the curve by about 20 years. <laughs> DeLorean went shopping for a host body that could do that big engine justice. He wanted something light on its feet and fun to drive. And salvation came to him in the form of the 1961 Tempest. It wasn't the perfect donor, but it was considered compact for the time. And its setup gave it a decent weight ratio. Power to weight ratio. Yeah, that's what's hilarious. Like The Tempest is like still a big car. It's a big car. <laughs> The Tempest was only slightly smaller than a modern-day Dodge Challenger and weighed almost a 1,000 pounds less. And along with uh, some fancy suspension up front, it was actually fun to drive as well. But before DeLorean got his hands on the Tempest, it was a slow car. There was a strict mandate at GM that forbade cramming big motors in the little cars for their sole purpose of going fast. Estes and DeLorean had to go back to the drawing board to get approval from the GM high command so they could unleash their new creation upon the world. Back in 1955, there was a huge crash at Le Mans that killed like 100 people. And after that, a lot of auto manufacturers pulled out of racing altogether because they didn't want, uh, well, well, one, they didn't want government regulation coming in and telling them that they had to do it in the first place. So it was like a voluntary thing. And two, it was kind of bad publicity, you know, to be associated with something that kind of, well, one, regularly killed the drivers, but two, occasionally killed spectators. Racing was very dangerous back then. I occasionally kill spectators. Yeah? With kindness! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, understandably, uh, DeLorean's plan to make a fast car and get back into racing wasn't going to be seen uh, with the most uh, positive light from GM execs. But after some hemming and hawing, Estes and DeLorean cracked the code and found a loophole. Their brainchild would live as a special GTO performance package offered when you went to purchase an actual Pontiac Tempest instead of offering the car as a standalone model. The GTO was an homage to the Ferrari 250 GTO. GTO stood for Gran Turismo Homologato, 
or approved for Grand Touring Racing. GT racing was road racing, not oval racing, not drag racing. Actual curvy turns and zooming straights that test the limits of a car. Oh, it's just homologation in Italian? Homologato. Yes, sir. Nice. The bean counters and the executives threw up their hands in frustration, knowing that they were completely outwitted by DeLorean and Estes. They had no choice but to play along and allow anyone who wanted to go fast to do so. For only $295, or $2,200 in today's money, you could upgrade the tiny Tempest from boring to an actual legitimate muscle car. It would be like having a Hellcat option in a 2020 VW Golf for $2,200. That's like how much the red paint on a Tesla costs, if you want. (laughs) It's true. People did not know how to react. Orders flooded Pontiac dealerships, and by the end of the year... 32,450 GTOs were sold. Hell yeah. The Tempest was outshined by what was under the hood. DeLorean and the team quickly geared up to break the amazing engine out of the Tempest. And by 1966, the GTO was its own standalone model. Gym execs had no option to deny its popularity. I mean, money talks at the end of the day. The 1966 GTO got a full makeover. It got curvaceous and sexy and had flared fender lines with tunnel rear lights. But the body stayed small, and the width increased by a bit to give the car some better stability. DeLorean filled the interior with unpretentious bucket seats that had adjustable headrests and intuitive gauges. It was everything the youths wanted to drive. I still want to drive it too. Pontiac leaned heavily into the GTO with massive marketing campaigns. They coined the term muscle car and splashed it all over TV and magazines. Pontiac even tried to brand the GTO the Tiger, because Tigers were scarier than Mustangs, probably. (laughs) But those wacky youth turned it around and started calling it the GOAT. And that stuck. Because of the letters, or what? Yep. By 1966, the other members of the Big Three caught wind of DeLorean's madness, and it was game on. The Charger hit the market with the coveted Hemi motor that everyone had been talking about. The Chevelle got deadly serious and the Super Sport 396 became its own model. The market was on fire with big block motors finding homes inside of sub 4,000 pound coupes. As a result of this, everything got better. Tires got stickier, mufflers got less restrictive, wheels got lighter, on and on. The muscle car era was born and from here, it's all Barracudas, Roadrunners, GTO Judges, Camaro SS's and Chevelle SS 454's. The dream of actually fast cars had arrived, and they were ripping apart racetracks. The 1969 Daytona 500 looked a bit different than Bill France's 1936 race on the beach in Daytona, Florida. There was an actual track, and the cars would be unrecognizable to the drivers of the Ford Model 48s. Every stock car in the race was bred directly from that lineage, though. They were carved out of the lessons learned from the Flathead V8s, the Rocket 88, and the Hudson Hornet. The modern stock cars were not as stock as they were in the late 30s, but they were lighter, they were faster, they were lower, and they were a lot more fun. But one similarity to that day at the beach in 1936 was that the driver who won, Leroy Yarborough, did it in a Ford Torino, which was, of course, powered by a V8. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, man. 
freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> is the GTO judge the one with a gauge in the hood? Was it the tack? The tack, yeah. Um, probably has that. That was a popular feature. People love gimmicks like that. Yeah. Back in the day. I love gimmicks like that. Oh, yeah, that's sick. Now, now I'm looking at charges on Craigslist. <laughs> what are they at? Like uh, 60000 right now or what? Uh, it depends on the condition of these cars. With every muscle car, people will want anything from like $100,000 up to like twenty grand for like a decent one. Like here's one. Here's a 70 Charger in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. It looks in really great condition, but they want forty six grand for it. But this thing looks, I mean, this thing's like pristine. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. That's, I would, it's not bad. That's pretty reasonable, actually. There's one in Carlsbad for twenty six grand, and it looks pretty good too. Uh, no, this one's way rougher, but you can still drive this thing. Anyway, um, I love muscle cars. Uh, they were the first car that I was into. Um, I think I've kind of, I've kind of drifted away from them after working at Donut. You know, being so exposed to so many different types yeah. of of cars, uh, makes and models and scenes and what have you, but. I think my heart will always belong to the muscle car. I think you secretly are a Beamer boy. Oh, I love, well, I've, that's like a recent discovery. You know, every time I drive a BMW now, I'm like, Ooh, I gotta, gotta have one of these, especially after driving that M2. But I mean, dude, having a BMW and a muscle car would not be a bad, a bad situation. And Germans make some muscle cars too. They don't call them muscle cars, but no, they call, they call them more students like him. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they call them uh, AMGs, you know? Yeah. Well, that was fun. I love talking about muscle cars. Well, thank you so much for listening to Pass Gas this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Um, follow the boys on all social media, at Joe G. Weber, at James Pumphrey, at me, Nolan J. Sykes. I love hearing from, uh, we love hearing from the Pass Gas audience. Hit us up. At passgas at donutmedia.com. Mm-hmm. What should we... We have never come up with a name for our fans. Can we call them gassers? Gassers is pretty good. Gassers. Yeah, it's better than pastors. What's up, gassers? We want to hear from you guys. Yeah, gassers is good. Gas gang. Gas gang is good, too. Gas gang. What's up, gas gang? <laughs> gas gang's good. Gas gang, gas gang, gas gang. Gas gang, 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 gas gang. All right, well, until next time, be kind. I love you. Cobra Nation, stand down. A day of reckoning will come for <laughs> Wink Wink Nation, but not yet. Wink Wink Nation, stand by. We are not, we are passive. We do not want to start anything right now. A day of reckoning is coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, goodbye. <laughs>
is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.